Hello and welcome to Season 8 of the Equip Project Podcast Complete with new intro music. It's great to be back at this table, Jim. It's been quite a few months, actually. I've really missed it. Um, has anything dramatic happened in your life since we were last here? <laughs> well, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm trying to think of dramatic events that occurred in the past few months. I replaced the tyres on my car in July. Impressive. August was really all about organi- reorganising my library. And last month, the highlight was I ordered up 40 AA batteries. Wow. And I remember that because when I ripped open the Amazon envelope, all the batteries spilled out onto the garage floor. <laughs> so far, I have managed to retrieve 39 of them. So apart from those dramatic episodes, my life has been a grey continuum of mostly futile activity. Okay, well, so I'm intrigued. Why so many batteries? Well, I just buy in bulk. Okay. I At the moment, I have 170 toilet rolls in my house. <laughs> And uh, f- fifty, uh, k- k- you know, kitchen tile rolls. Well, that is that is quite remar- That's quite a remarkable accumulation. Some would even say hoarding, Jim. Potentially, um, were you one of those like pre-COVID hoarders? I think that's when it started. But you know, one one never knows when the nuclear winter will begin. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll be coming to your house. Although that last battery, I mean, what's going to happen when you find that last? Battery. You remind me about you remind me of the woman in the Bible who had lost that coin. If you find that last battery, there's going to be a celebration. I see. Yeah, the, the parable of the lost battery doesn't quite have the emotional weight of the parable of the lost sheep, does it? <laughs> not quite. Not quite. Okay. Well, it sounds like your life has been very, very interesting, Jim. Um, and mine, mine has been too. I mean, haven't done as much as you, but of course not. D- done a, yeah, I mean, haven't bought as many batteries, <laughs> maybe 10, maybe 12 batteries. But, um, but anyway, I, I digress. We're going to be thinking this season about the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four books take us to the heart of Christianity. But we have a specific reason for focusing on the four gospels. For a long time, they've been a battleground. Critics of Christianity have launched wave after wave of attacks on the historicity and the theological coherence of the Gospels. So in this season, then, we'll examine many of the arguments advanced by biblical critics against the trustworthiness of the Gospels. It's vital that believers have confidence in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, because our faith is built entirely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. If the Gospel authors have written a fiction, or if they're horribly biased, then our faith is a castle built on sand. So in this season, we'll think about the quest for the authentic Jesus. That's a term used by critical scholars who treat the four Gospels as literary rubble that must be sifted to find some evidence of the central figure of Christianity. Then, we'll tackle the controversy over Jesus' words. Do the Gospels record Jesus' exact words? Or did the Gospel writers just give us a gist of what he said? Another critical question that is often raised relates to the reliability of the Gospel documents. How can we have confidence that we're reading eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life? And finally, we'll delve into some of the classic questions about contradictions in the gospel. So that's the plan for this season. Our first two episodes are going to have a slightly different focus, though. Uh, We're going to think about the historical context of the gospels. We're going to think about the blank page in our Bibles that separates the last book of the Old Testament from the first book of the New Testament. There's a 400-year gap between the end of Malachi and the Gospels. It's sometimes called the intertestamental period, and it's a period I've always found fascinating, Jim, and I'm excited to hear hear more about it. Yeah, well, when we leave the Old Testament, uh, Judea is under Persian rule, but when we start the New Testament, there are squads of Roman soldiers marching around Jerusalem. So we have to think about how we get from the Persian Empire 
to the Roman Empire. And Jim, you know how much I loved the history series we did a little while ago. In yes. fact, it's inspired our new soundtrack. Um, I mean, I'm still quite bitter about it, but I did love that series. So I'm happy to be using the music from it. Um, and hopefully, as this discussion gets going, we'll understand how some really important features of the New Testament culture came about. I'm thinking about groups such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or why the New Testament writers quote from a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's going to be dramatic. We do have to admit, Jim, that maybe not everyone loves ancient history as much as we do, certainly not as much as you do. So the release dates for the first two episodes will be close together, and that will allow anyone who doesn't share your enthusiasm for the Battle of Marathon or the Punic Wars to join the season at episode three. Having said that, there is a really important reason why the historical context matters. Many young Christians can believe that Bible history exists in a parallel universe from the rest of world history. It's as if the Bible begins with in a land far, far away. But Christianity is truth revealed in history. So one of our big aims in these first two episodes is to show how biblical history is woven seamlessly into world history. Christianity is not a cunning fable. It is about real historical events. So let's get underway in our task to connect the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. The final books of the Old Testament tell us about the Babylonian exile. God's people were taken from Judea to the land of Babylon. Jerusalem was razed to the ground. Even the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. But the book of Daniel tells us how the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians. The Persian emperor was called Cyrus the Great, and he had a more enlightened approach to empire building. So he allowed the Jewish slaves in Babylon to return home, and he even funded the project to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Cyrus conquers the Babylonians in 539 BC. And he then makes his announcement about the Jewish return from exile the next year. Now, the interesting thing is that the return is a really slow, gradual process over the next 90 years. Um, there are four big movements of people over that period. Work on the temple, rebuild, that starts in uh, 536 BC. All sorts of politics causes it to stop, and it only restarts in about 520 BC. While some exiles have returned to Judea by this stage, many have chosen to remain in the Persian Empire. So the events recorded in the book of Esther take place at this time. That's right. Meanwhile, back in Judea, the temple is eventually rebuilt by March 516 BC. And the third wave of the return occurs in 458 BC, and that's led by Ezra, uh, who was the minister of Jewish affairs in the Persian Empire, as well as uh, a scholar and a Jewish priest as we know him. And then finally, in about 445 BC, Nehemiah leads the final wave of the return. And as everyone knows, he leads the work to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So the Old Testament takes us up to about halfway through the 5th century BC. In simple terms, the missing 400 years is the story of how the Persian Empire gave way to the Greek Empire, which in turn gave way to the Roman Empire. So in this conversation, we're going to talk about the Persians and the Greeks, once we've sketched out the shape of each empire, we'll think about what was going on in Israel as each empire rose and fell. Over the summer, I read a book called Persian Fire, uh, and it's by the historian Tom Holland, and it charts the rise of the Persian Empire and its fatal attempt to conquer not only the East but the West by taking on the Greeks. The Persian Empire was an amazing achievement. I mean, it was absolutely enormous, covering Turkey and Egypt, 
all of Asia Minor, Iran, Iraq, the Caucasus, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the north of India, right down to Kashmir. Uh, now, we know some of the emperors from the Bible, like Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes. Um, there's more than one Darius and more than one Xerxes, so we need to be a little bit careful uh, when stitching biblical history together with world history. But there are some almost irresistible links between the two. Perhaps the main feature of the Persian Empire uh, was that it was based not so much on military force as on brilliant administration. Darius sorted out a sustainable uh, tribute system, putting the empire on a sound financial footing. Everything was carefully controlled by this well-oiled civil service machine. Uh, every official had a, a graded passport, you might call it. It was a document that allowed him to use the king's highways. Uh, depending on the official's seniority, he got rooms, food, fresh horses at key intersections. Uh, now, the whole scheme was utterly despotic. Okay, Emperors like Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes had complete control over their empire. They were called the Great King or the King of Kings. Uh, but there does seem to have been like a, a noble desire to bring order to a chaotic world. Now, it doesn't take a lot of theological imagination to see where some of those values came from. From Daniel and his three friends, um, who were perhaps the most senior civil servants in the Persian Empire. They were incorruptible and brilliant. So it's not a huge leap to see their impact on the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. It was Darius who stabilised the eastern flank of the empire. That allowed him to turn his attention to the west, to Europe in general, and Greece in particular. At this time, Greece was a set of city-states. They spent most of their time quarrelling and fighting with each other. But they also stirred up a rebellion against the Persians in Syria. So Darius determined to teach the city-states of Athens and Sparta a hard lesson. That's right. This was around about 490 BC. So about five years before Ezra leads the third wave of returning Jews from exile. Darius ordered uh, an absolutely massive attack on Greece from the sea. And so this armada transported tens of thousands of Persian troops to Greece, you know, with their white horses because he had so many cavalry. But the Athenians, in a rare moment of unity, they decide upon this bold strategy and they march to meet the Persians before they get off the beaches, as it were. And the two sides skirmished for a few days before the Athenians realised that the Persians were heading back to their ships to sail further up the coast, allowing them to attack Athens directly. And the Greeks were scared, uh, stiff of the Persians, but they screwed up their courage and they attacked them at daybreak. And uh, they used this phalanx formation. Uh, and it was it was surprisingly successful, and they got close enough to so that their metal armor and their uh, longer spears could wreak havoc on the Persians. And a good lot of the Persians got onto the ships. So the Athenians, although they were exhausted, marched twenty six miles back to Athens and got there before the Persian ships turned up. The battle had taken place at a site called Marathon. So the Athenians' twenty six mile march is the reason why marathons today are twenty six miles long. That is a superb piece of trivia. I will be using that at Christmas. Um, absolutely. I, one of the best things about this podcast, Jim, it's given me so many little anecdotes to share with people. Exactly. About, I remember we talked about Alcuin of York invented the question mark. I remember that. Yeah. We should actually compile a book yes. and we could give it away to people of little, <laughs> little gems of knowledge from the Equip Project podcast. Anyway. Uh, after the defeat at Marathon, the Persian emperor Darius decided that he really needed to crush Greece. So he assembled a vast army to march once again on Greece. The Greeks were terrified because their spies estimated the Persian army to be over a million strong. 
even though modern historians put the figure at 350,000. Darius had wanted to lead the campaign himself, but he died before it got underway, so his son Xerxes took charge. The Persian army was so huge that transport by sea was impossible. So they marched into Europe by land, and there was there's one natural barrier in the way, uh, what we call the Dardanelles in northwest Turkey, uh, which is a, this narrow strait of water just over a mile wide, and it separates Europe and Asia. And Xerxes ordered two massive pontoon bridges to be built, and the first structure was broken up by the waves. So Xerxes, <laughs> what I think is the most hubristic act of all history, ordered that the sea be whipped. <laughs> It got 30 lashes for disobeying the great king's will. And some of the original engineers were also decapitated. So the replacement pontoon bridges were much sturdier, and it took nine days for the huge army to cross into Europe. Uh, Again, another outstanding little nugget there, Jim. Uh, And how did this invasion actually go? Well, amazingly, it also failed. The Spartans held up Xerxes in Thermopylae. That's the story told in the film 300, a film which I have never seen, by the way. Um, (laughs) Now, the Spartans were a repellent culture, um, really, really evil, uh, but no one can dispute their courage in battle. And eventually, anyway, the Persians broke through Thermopylae, uh, but the rest of the invasion was a disaster. And eventually, the Persians realized that their attempt to conquer the West was an overreach, so they went home. Just over a century later, the amazing figure called Alexander the Great reverses the story when he conquers the entire Persian Empire. But before we get to that point, what was going on in Israel throughout this time, Jim? Well, as we can imagine, it was a period of difficult adjustment. There were tensions between those who had returned from exile and the so-called people of the land who had never gone into exile. So there were lots of arguments about intermarrying foreigners and so on. But that was symptomatic of what we might call an identity crisis. I mean, what did it mean to be a Jew? The vision held out by the prophets Uh, seemed to be of an independent kingdom ruled by a messianic figure. But post-exilic Israel was a a bit player in the Persian Empire, a straightforward vassal state. We've got to remember that it took many decades for the basic civil fabric of Israel to knit itself together again. Even by 445 BC, it was hard work to persuade people to start living once more in Jerusalem. So for the next century, right up to the middle of the 4th century, Israel was painfully rebuilding itself uh, into a society once again. There was this widespread feeling of disillusionment about their place in the world and how to interpret the promises of God while living as pawns in a great empire. And it's during this time that a really strong interest in end times arises, in Israel's eschatological hope. It begins to take root in Jewish culture. And you can hear that on Martha when she's talking in John, John 11. I think the most interesting feature of this period is what does not happen. Okay, there, There's no return to idolatry. Before the exile, Israel was like a junkie when it came to idolatry. But after living in Babylon, the land of idols, the lure of idolatry seems to have dissipated. Mm, yeah, that is, that, is really, that is really fascinating. After Xerxes' failed attempt to conquer the West, Greece reverts to its usual internal squabbles and disputes between city-states. It took a ruthless ruler from Macedonia, Philip II, to establish control over Greece. And so, round about 330 BC, the stage is set for one of history's most remarkable characters to explode onto the scene. Philip's son, who we know as Alexander the Great. He did what the Persian emperors had failed to do. He established an empire that spanned both east and west. Alexander was a political and military genius. 
he also teetered on the edge of alcoholism. But he managed to conquer Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, India, and Afghanistan. He is reputed to have wept when he discovered that there were no more kingdoms to conquer. He returned to Babylon, intending to conquer the rest of North Africa, including Carthage. But he died in 323 BC at the age of 33. Alexander's father Philip arranged for the philosopher Aristotle to tutor his son, which is a bit like getting Stephen Hawking to tutor your child through GCSE math. <laughs> That's not quite fair because Alexander was precociously bright himself and he thought very deeply about how to effect lasting change. You see, a cynic might call Alexander the Great a dazzling star that burned bright for a short while and then disappeared. Now, it is true that his empire quickly dissolved into four smaller empires, but that cynical analysis misses the point about the impact of Greece on world history. We shouldn't think of the Greeks in terms of their military campaigns. The huge, world-changing impact of the Greeks is explained in a single word, Hellenization. In modern language, we could say that the Greeks used cultural power to align barbarians to their way of life. At its most basic level, Greek became the English of the ancient world. The Lord Jesus himself almost certainly spoke Greek as well as Aramaic. But cultural power is much more than language or a common currency. I mean, think of all the various elements that make up a culture. Institutions, names, customs, education, clothing, artefacts, language, religious myths, philosophy. The Greeks made their culture an aspirational thing. Hellenization, as it was called, tended to follow the process of urbanization, so it appealed to more progressive and elitist people who were moving into the cities. The key concept was a thing called ecumene, which can be thought of as, I guess, polite society. So Hellenization introduces this idea of an inner ring in humanity, if you like. It codified the sophisticated and enlightened people and how they interacted with the world around them. In order to see how Hellenization impacted the Jewish nation, we need to think about what happened politically after Alexander the Great's death. What actually happened then, Jim, to his great empire? Okay, when Alexander died, uh, he was placed in a huge gold coffin, uh, protected by this incredibly high canopy, and was pulled by an army of mules. And the original plan was to bury him in Macedonia, which was the country of his birth. But one of his generals, a man called Ptolemy, hijacked the mule train and diverted it to Egypt, where, where he ruled, uh, because he thought it would give his territory greater prestige. And it actually did. Uh, the great and the good came to visit uh, Alexander's uh, uh, coffin for many, many years. But anyway, in, in the years that followed Alexander's death, the Greeks reverted to type and they started this whole series of immensely complicated internal bum fights. And that messy state of affairs lasted for over 50 years. And it's only when we get to 260 BC when the empire gets carved up into three major dynasties. So Egypt was run by the Ptolemies. Asia Minor and Central Asia were governed by Seleucus and his son Antiochus and Greece itself was governed by Antigonus. So far as Israel was concerned, the two big dynasties that controlled them were the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria. That's right. To begin with, uh, Judea was ruled by the Ptolemies in Egypt, and they didn't interfere too much with the Jewish way of life. But in 200 BC, uh, the Seleucid dynasty wrested control of Judea away from the Ptolemies. And that's interesting, because the Seleucids were more heavy-handed in their efforts to Hellenize Judea. 
And they also interfered in the appointment of the high priests at Jerusalem's temple. And and in fact, they even robbed the temple treasury. This brings us up to 167 BC, which is a famous moment in Israel's history because it's the date of the Maccabean Revolt. That's right. Now, the Maccabean Revolt was an uprising against the Hellenization imposed and encouraged by the Seleucids. Uh, The Seleucid ruler at this time is notorious. He was called Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus had marched an army into Egypt to fight the Ptolemies, and on his way back he stopped off in Jerusalem. And he took a vast amount of gold, from memory I think it's 1,500 talents, from the temple treasury. Uh, And that starts this really vicious dispute between Hellenistic Jews and those who opposed the imposition of Greek culture. And the whole thing got completely out of hand. And Antiochus uh, launched a harsh campaign of repression uh, against Jewish culture. This was in 168 BC. And thousands of people died. Now, no one's quite sure why Antiochus was so harsh. Um, the historian Josephus called him a psychopath. But anyway, he, he banned lots of Jewish practices like circumcision. He made them work on the Sabbath. He forced Jews to eat pork. And worse, he turned the temple into a sort of syncretistic pagan Jewish cult. And that's why his name is associated. You know that phrase, the abomination of desolation mentioned yeah. in Daniel? Yeah. yeah, that comes from him. Now, the uprising that followed, it's actually started when a, a rural Jewish priest refused to offer worship at a pagan shrine. He and his five sons began a guerrilla war. Now, the priest himself was killed shortly afterwards, but his son, the famous Judas Maccabeus, took over leadership of the band of warriors, and they became known as the Maccabees. And over time, they actually built an actual army. Amazingly, they succeeded in retaking Jerusalem. So the Seleucids gave up, they returned to Syria, and the Maccabees entered Jerusalem in triumph. They ritually cleansed the second temple, uh, re-establishing Orthodox Jewish worship. And the date of that cleansing is celebrated today with the festival of Hanukkah. For the next century, Israel would live in a sort of quasi-independent state ruled by the family of Judas Maccabeus. This period is called the Hasmonean Dynasty. This tension between the Hellenized Jews and the anti-Greek Jews continues into the New Testament then, doesn't it? Yes. The Maccabees waged a pretty ruthless war on pro-Greek Jews. And then this range of anti-Greek factions start to spring up. And one group uh, eventually becomes known as the Pharisees. And another group, uh, a group that started off as anti-Greek, eventually drifts into Hellenization and they become the Sadducees. In next week's episode, we'll talk about the rise of the Roman Empire. But before we finish off this discussion about Greek culture, Jim, I want to ask you about the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, what we call the Septuagint. It developed in the 3rd and 2nd century BC, and it is the version of the Old Testament that is often quoted by New Testament authors. The questions raised by the Septuagint are really important from an apologetics perspective, aren't they? Yes. I'm going to be honest here, Ollie, and say that the differences between the Septuagint and the original Hebrew Masoretic text raise questions that I find very difficult to answer, or at least I I used to find them very difficult. And that's because the Septuagint sometimes seems to impose a completely different meaning on the text. But in recent years, uh, I have found peace about the issue, and it came from a bit of music by J.S. Bach. That's not what I was expecting, I have to be honest, but do go on. Allow me to explain. (laughs) 
Bach once wrote an organ sonata. Well, he actually wrote a lot of them, but the one I'm thinking about is number four. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely bit of music, but I, I, I don't often listen to it uh, as an organ piece. But in the, in the late 19th century, a composer called August uh, Straddle uh, created an arrangement of Bach's organ sonata for piano. And I listened to that arrangement on, on, on average about twice a week. Uh, I've told Gareth Lewis I wanted to be played at my funeral. Now, here's the point. Straddle's arrangement is brilliant because it pulls things out of Bach's original piece that I had never noticed. It's more than a translation from organ to piano. It's a fresh interpretation that makes explicit things that were perhaps in the background in the original. Now, that elaborate metaphor, uh, I think, is a helpful lens through which to understand the role of the Septuagint. It was essential in God's plan that a Greek-based foundation was in place before the events of the New Testament occurred. A Greek New Testament required a Greek Old Testament. Now, I mightn't go so far as to claim that the Septuagint was inspired by God, but I don't think it was just one translation among many. Under the supervision of the Holy Spirit, the Greek translators re-expressed the original words of the Old Testament authors in a fresh, spirit-orchestrated way. And like Bach's organ sonata and its arrangement for piano, we are blessed to have both the original and the arrangement. Brilliant, Jim. I feel like there's a lot more that can be said on that topic. But for now, we're going to close the story. We're going to pick up again next week and we're going to think about the Roman Empire. But thanks for your time and thanks for listening. We'll see you all again next week.